How's everybody doing? Good. Man, I was gone for a week and I missed you guys and it's good to be back. It is a privilege to be your pastor. Um, I'm really grateful and uh, a week away makes me feel it. Um, You guys are sweet and generous and humble, generous with your time and your talent and your money. Not many pastors can shoot a text at 9.30 at night uh, the night before a holiday and get a Mother's Day sermon. That's excellent. I listened to it and encouraging. So it's sweet. Um, you guys are, are great. Nathan's great, but you already knew that. Um, I really needed last week off uh, and it was good. Uh, so, okay, so turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 19 beginning in verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic and Latin and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. 
But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to you weak and needy and looking for hope and for help and for strength, looking for faith. Would you give us faith this morning? Would you waken our hearts to you? Would you help us to look to Jesus this morning and to his work on our behalf? Help us, Father, as we come to consider who Jesus is. Open our hearts, open our ears, give us soft and tender hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is week four in our study of who is Jesus, right? And who is Jesus is the most important question that anyone can ask. Everyone has to deal with Jesus. Why? Because Jesus has shaped history. He has reshaped history. He entered the world and everything changed. If you are an honest person, if you're a serious person, you cannot look at the world around you. You cannot look at what has happened over the last 2,000 years and not reckon with who Jesus is. So we've been on a quest to answer the question, who is Jesus? Our first answer is Jesus is God, right? If you went out on the street, supermarket, fall festival, stood out in front of the YMCA and asked people who Jesus is, most people would say, well, what? It's a good person, a good teacher. Maybe they wouldn't be ready to give you that he's God, right? But Jesus hasn't left that option open to us because he said he was God. And a good moral teacher doesn't say he's God. That's a bad moral teacher, unless he's telling the truth. Jesus forces us into a corner. Either he's a madman, or he is exactly who he said he is. He is God, and he is, and that changes everything. It changes how we treat the Bible, it changes how we read the Bible, it changes how we understand the world and ourselves in it. It changes how we understand history. It changes how we live. It changes everything. Jesus is God, and that changes everything. Answer number one, Jesus is God. That changes everything. Answer number two, Jesus is also man. Not a fake man. Not, remember, not Superman wearing Clark Kent glasses. A pretend man. But a real man who was born, who grew up, who had a family with brothers and a mom, who worked with his hands and had calluses, who was hungry and thirsty and tired just like you. And so he ate and drank and slept. He was joyful. He was angry. He was sad. When he was sad, he wept and cried. He was mistreated, betrayed, lonely, 
He was slandered and lied about. He was mocked. He was abandoned by his closest friends and his family. He was tempted in every way as we are. There's nothing in your life that Jesus can't relate to or say, I know what that's like. There's nothing he can't sympathize with in one way or another. And that's important because that means we have a God that we can come to with everything in life. If you hold on to that truth, it will change your life and it will change how you think about what happens to you. Here's an example uh, that happened to me recently. Um, It's kind of small and it's kind of silly, but my five and six-year-old boys, Ozzy and Haddon, tried out for a six-year-old all-star team in their rec league. And, and they're really good at baseball. Um, and they were cut. They didn't make the first team. And there was a second team. And they were cut from that team too. 13 kids on each team, 26 kids. Only 31 kids or something like that tried out. I don't understand why they were cut. No one can explain it to me. What I know is that if they were in here with their baseball gloves, I could throw a ball up to the rafters and they would catch it. What I know is some of the kids on that team, if they were standing right there and I tossed them a ball underhand, they couldn't catch it. I don't know why they were cut. I don't understand. It makes me angry. It's frustrating to me as a dad because I feel like they were overlooked. They deserved something. They should have had it. They're not, they're, not, they don't, they're not getting the thing that they deserve. They're not being treated fairly, from my perspective, at least, as a dad. Uh, are they worthy of being on the team? I think so. I don't get to make that call, though. I think they're misjudged. I think they're being treated unfairly. As a dad, that makes you angry, right? It's frustrating. Okay, here's a question. This is a simple, small, dopey little example, right? Does Jesus know what it's like to be treated unfairly? Does he know what it's like to be misjudged? (laughs) Uh, Yeah. How about God the Father? Does he know what it's like for his son to be mistreated? Treated unfairly, misjudged? He does. He does. Does it compare at all to my five and six-year-old boys not making a little all-star team? No. No, not really. It's kind of silly, right? Jesus, the infinite, eternal Son of God, mocked by the lips he formed for his praise. <laughs> My boys, who I think can catch better, better than some other kids, don't make it all. It's just like complete opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Does it compare? No. But also, yes, actually, yeah, it does. It does compare because it matters and it helps me. Because if God the Father can endure his son being spat on and mocked, I can endure my boys being snubbed. If I'm even right about that. I'm a dad, right? I'm a little biased. I can admit that. If God the Father can endure that, if Jesus can endure it, I can endure just a little bit of that sort of thing here and there. A little bit of politics, right? There's no struggle. Here's the point. There's no struggle, big or small, big or small, that Jesus can't relate to. We have a God we can come to with everything, big or small, everything. 
So Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and that makes him fit to be our mediator. What's a mediator again? We had just a little definition that we gave. A mediator is a go-between, right? Somebody that stands in the middle, okay? Adam, our first father, was made of dust, of earth, and he was spiritual. He was a mediator between heaven and earth, both of the earth and of heaven. He stood between heaven and earth. And as a mediator, Adam had three jobs. Theologians call them offices, okay? Three jobs for man, prophet, priest, and king. And we had a little illustration of those uh, in the service. I had Ian stand up and run back and forth between me and the soundboard, remember? So a prophet, a prophet, his job is to represent God to man, heaven to earth, A prophet reveals God's character and God's will. So remember with the platform is heaven and the soundboard back there in the back was earth. And had Ian come up here and I said, okay, Ian, this is heaven or not. This is the stage and this is me. You need to run back to Mr. Nathan was standing back at the platform, right? I said, you need to run back and represent my character and my will to Nathan. My character is that I'm very handsome And my will is that Nathan offer me a sacrifice, preferably in monetary form, commensurate with my handsomeness. So Ian ran back with a message, like a prophet, from the platform to the soundboard, from heaven to earth. That's what a prophet does. Represents the platform to the soundboard. Represents heaven, God, to earth, to man. So he went and he told Mr. Nathan, uh, Jake's really handsome, or he said, dad, dad's really handsome, and he demands a sacrifice, preferably all the money that you have. And Mr. Nathan pulled out a dime and said, I think this is about the worth of Jake's handsomeness. And so he ran it back to me. When he ran it back to me, he was being a priest. Because the priest's job is to represent man before God earth to heaven. He stands before God and represents our response to God. Okay? Does that make sense? So Nathan says a dime. That's the response from soundboard to platform. And then I turned around and I said, okay, not good enough. Here's a weapon. Go execute justice. Gave him my pen. And then Ian went and stabbed Nathan with a pen or something like that. He was being a king. King's job is to rule over creation on God's behalf as God's representative, as God's image bearer. He has the power and the authority to enforce God's will. Okay. Ian goes back with the pen and says, your dime's not good enough and stabs him. Okay. But in God's case, it's actual justice. Right. Not my petty vengeance. Okay, so prophet, priest, and king. Got it? The work of a mediator, Adam's job. And we talked about what happened. Man fell. Adam handed his crown to Satan at the tree where he ate of the fruit. Adam rang a bell that couldn't be unrung. He did something that couldn't be undone. All of creation fell in Adam and was cursed with death and destruction and futility. Adam sinned and death entered the world. And the ground was cursed with thorns and thistles. And Jesus came to do what man could not do. 
man fell and could not climb back to heaven. So heaven came down to take it all back, to reclaim it. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is only one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Then we talked about how Jesus comes to do the work of a mediator. First as a prophet. He is the son of God. He is the image of the invisible God. He perfectly reveals the father to us. He represents him perfectly in his character, in his will. He is the last word, the final word, perfect and complete. Hebrews 1.1 says this, long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. God's word is complete in Jesus. He is the incarnate word of God. We don't need anything more. His word is complete because he is the word. The Bible is complete. Jesus, as our prophet, reveals God's perfect holiness to us and his will for our lives that we should be perfectly obedient to him. And that means as our prophet, Jesus convicts us of all the ways that we're not perfectly obedient to him. He convicts us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, of all the ways that we fall short. And that's the work of his earthly ministry. And that work was validated, authenticated by his signs, his miracles, the things that he did. On the one hand, That's a huge relief to us. Jesus comes and tells us the truth about ourselves. And we have to reckon with the fact that, yeah, we really are sinners. Yeah, that guilt we feel is real. And that's a relief because it's the truth. And we know it's the truth deep down. We're sinners. We stand under the judgment of God. We know everyone who says something otherwise is selling something. Our guilt is real. And in a weird way, that gives us hope because while on the one hand, it's devastating and kind of terrifying, on the other hand, we're not in hell yet. And God sent us somebody to tell us about it. There's gotta be a reason. There's gotta be hope. God sent someone, God gave us a prophet for a reason. But what can be done? And that brings us to today. It's the heart of the good news, the heart of the gospel. And that, that it's that Jesus, our prophet, is also Jesus, our priest. So what's a priest again? A priest is someone who stands before God and represents the people to God, right? Who represents the world, man, to God before heaven. When you think of a priest, what do you think of? What does a priest do? He offers sacrifices, right? Sacrifice is the thing that should pop right into your brain. You think of sacrifice. Sacrifice runs deep because sin and guilt run deep. In the sense that sin must be atoned for, that it requires a sacrifice, that it requires death, that it requires blood, runs deep. And it's why every culture across humanity has always had sacrifice. After Adam and Eve fell in the Garden of Eden, God pronounced his curses. God promised that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. And what did God do next? You know? 
God clothed Adam and Eve, not with fig leaves, but with animal skins, the first sacrifice. They had to be covered by blood. Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children, we see make sacrifices to God. Noah makes sacrifices. All throughout the book of Genesis, Melchizedek, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Job in the book of Job, they all make sacrifices to God. Through Moses, God established a priesthood. Those priests, their job was to make sacrifice. There are multiple sacrifices we see throughout the Old Testament. The chief one's the Day of Atonement. How did it work? It worked like this. The first thing is the priest had to make a sacrifice for himself because even the priest was not worthy to come into God's presence because of his sin to offer sacrifice on anybody else's behalf. The Day of Atonement was the one day out of the year where a priest, one priest, the high priest, was allowed into God's presence, to the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God's presence dwelt. It was terrifying. To offer the sacrifices, he sacrificed the bull for his own sins, and then he brought two goats. One goat was the sin offering for the people. It bore the wrath of sin. There's a word for that. You can write it down and remember it if you want to. It's called propitiation. There's another uh, goat, and it was called the scapegoat. And the priest would lay his hands on the scapegoat and pronounce all the sins of the people. And they would send the goat out into the wilderness, far away from God's people to bear their sins, to take away and remove sin. There's a word for that too, if you want to write it down. You just needed to remember the principles, but it's called expiation. And together, that's atonement. Dealing with the wrath of sin, the priest comes clean and he deals with the wrath of God for sin and he removes sin. But the blood of bulls and goats could never actually atone for sin. They were only a ritual. They were symbolic. They taught the people the need They taught the people the depth of sin, the need for a sacrifice, but they couldn't accomplish it. They're just bulls and goats. Adam sinned and Adam needed to die. Man sinned and man needs to die, but we can't bear that weight. The pagans understood this and that's why human sacrifice is interwoven throughout human history. In fact, all murder is in some sense human sacrifice. Sacrifices are made to appease the gods and to get something. What is it that you want? You want so you don't have, so you murder. You attack the image of God in man. Cain was angry. Cain made a sacrifice. It wasn't accepted. So what did he do? He turned around and sacrificed his brother. God promised that the seed, the child of the woman, would crush the head of the snake. What sacrifice has the snake always demanded? Children. Pharaoh, the snake king, he wanted the firstborn sons. He wanted the children. He demanded that the Hebrews kill their children. Herod, when he was threatened that a king would rise up, called for all the children of Bethlehem to be murdered. Molech, the pagan demon god, has always demanded the sacrifice of children in exchange for a bountiful harvest 
and economic prosperity. Pagans have always obeyed and served him. Abortion is the pagan sacrifice of our children for a bountiful harvest and economic prosperity. We hide it, we cover it up, we act like we're not religious. Instead of our streets running red with the blood of our sacrifices, we put it just underground and it's our sewers. But they're still there. Nothing's changed. The more we move away from Jesus as a culture, the more we become like the ancient pagans. And like the ancient pagans, we pair our sacrifice of children with sexual debauchery. And none of it is sufficient. Moloch cannot be appeased, and God will not be appeased. Enter Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus, because of his perfect obedience to God the Father, because of his perfection as God himself made flesh, is worthy to stand in God's presence on our behalf. He doesn't have to offer any sacrifice for himself. His perfect obedience stands in place of our obedience. He made full and complete sacrifice of the only life that was able to remove our sin and our guilt, his own. He stood in our place. He stood in Adam's place. He bore the wrath of God on our behalf. Propitiation. And he removed sin. Expiation. He atoned for our sins through his death on the cross. Adam ate the fruit of the tree and fell. Jesus climbed the tree. He carried it on his back and he climbed it. And he ate the fruit of the fall. Death. He bore in his body the curse that is ours. The curse that is the world's. The Romans didn't know what they were doing when they put a crown of thorns on his head, but it mattered. It was symbolic. It meant something. 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 1 John 2.2, he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but for those of the whole world. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Hebrews 9.28, Christ has been offered as a sacrifice once to bear the sins of many. All of this is summarized by the prophet Isaiah, writing hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He's done it. Jesus has dealt with sin. The one thing that could never be done, he did it. He did it himself. He offered himself as our sacrifice. He, the priest, laid down his life for us. And it is finished. All of it. He stands today as our high priest between God and us. And so when God looks at the believer, God sees Jesus in his perfect obedience. He sees Jesus. And he doesn't remember our sins. As far as, for, as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sins from us. There's no sacrifice for us to offer. There is no sacrifice we could offer. There's nothing that we can do. But we can come to Jesus and trust in Jesus. We can come to him and bring our guilt and our shame and our sin, all of it, all of the things that we feel we cannot bear ourselves and all of its ugliness. We don't have to be afraid to admit it. We don't have to be afraid to confess it. We don't have to be afraid to own it because he owns it on our behalf. We can lay them at the foot of the cross. We can come to the tree. We can admit that we are just like Adam and Eve. We ate the fruit. We rang bells that can't be unrung. We can't bear the weight. And we can lay it there at his feet. And we can leave our life there too. He gave his life for ours, all of him for all of us. And now we live our lives for him, all of us for all of him, for all of the world. Starting at home with our husbands and our wives and our kids and our brothers and our sisters and our moms and our dads, with this church family that we have here together, with our neighbors, our coworkers, with the city. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending Jesus to be our prophet, to convict us of sin, and to be our priest who deals with our sin. Thank you that we can come to him with all of our sins and lay them at his feet. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.